Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Molly, it's Joe from Florida. Long-time listener, not a first-time caller. Also a premium submarine. And I just wanted to call in, because I don't know, I haven't left voicemail in a while, and I feel like I used to do this a lot. But I like took a little break from your podcast for a little while. Like, I was digesting it, like, every day. Episodes and episodes a day. And I finally, like, got to, like, such a comfortable place because of you. And because of everything that, like, I've learned through you and that's resonated with me. And, like, now I'm, like, such in a better, like, mental and maybe even emotional place where I'm, like, understanding myself and handling things so much better. I keep reminding myself that it's still, like, a lifetime journey. And I still just keep tapping into your podcast. And I just listened to the Rupture and Repair one and... Honestly, the whole time that I was just fighting back, like breaking out into tears as I listened to it in the gym. It's just amazing what you're giving to everyone and to me. And just thank you. And I can't wait to keep tuning in for what else you can share with us on this mystical fucking journey. All right, that's it. I think I'm running out of time. Bye. Thank you, Joe, for that voicemail. And welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know that. And now you do. 
And on this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working and integrating the concepts we'll explore together on the podcast, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. One last big shout out to Joe. I really appreciate getting voicemails like that. I am creating this podcast in a vacuum. I say this before to my premium subscribers, but I create this all by myself in my little office. And so even though I see the download numbers being really high, it's nice to hear things like that in people's voices, just crying to my podcast episodes at the gym, you know, and my acupuncturist that I saw the last six months, she said something to me a couple of months ago and she said she worries more about her patients that don't cry and she encourages them to find ways to release those emotions. She even tells them sometimes to force themselves to listen to sad music or watch a sad movie if they're feeling like they're bottled up with emotions. And so to all my big feelers out there, never feel bad about crying. It's a good thing. It's a cleansing thing. And it's so easy to think that if we allow ourselves to cry, that we'll just sort of get completely swallowed up with those emotions and we'll never escape. And so we have to just keep ourselves strong. But really, if you just surrender to those feelings and let it pass, you'll be surprised how cleansing crying can be. So here we are, and we are back for part two of our series exploring the concept of shame. And on the last episode, we discussed in detail why shame is important and that there is a certain amount of healthy shame. And there's a big difference between healthy adaptive shame that keeps us in touch with our limits and our boundaries and our humanity. And then there is toxic shame, which becomes an identity. And we finished off the episode by briefly discussing why even being shameless, right? Having no ability to be in touch with our healthy shame, that can also cause disorder and dysfunction in our lives. And it can manifest in us not caring at all about other people. And many of us get caught up in that spiral in our lives. I myself have been in phases where I think I, I have been completely out of touch with my healthy shame. And I've also been in times in my life where I have been crippled by toxic shame. So don't feel like you have to fit squarely in one camp. This is just an exploration. So on the last episode, if you've already listened to it, and if you haven't yet, I highly recommend that you do start with part one because it's really important that we understand why healthy shame and having that and being in touch with that is important and how it develops and what phases of childhood we usually develop and become in touch with a sense of healthy shame in order for you to understand toxic shame 
at all and really connected in your life. So if you haven't listened to part one, just pause this now and go back and listen to that first. So to really understand shame as toxic, we have to dive in a bit to what has been referred to in psychiatry as character disorders or personality disorders. Now, American psychiatrist Scott Peck describes both neuroses and character disorders as what he calls disorders of responsibility. And he wrote in a book, The Road Less Traveled, the neurotic assumes too much responsibility, the person with a character disorder, not enough responsibility. When neurotics are in conflict with the world, they automatically assume that they're at fault. When those with character disorders are in conflict with the world, they automatically assume that the world is at fault. Now, as many of you know, I am not the biggest fan of the concept of personality disorders or character disorders, but what I think is helpful here is that it is and can be helpful to just think of things on a spectrum and think about how we all kind of share these different traits. Just like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, there have been times where I felt like I was on the end of the spectrum that Scott Peck describes as assuming that the world is to blame for all my problems. And then I've also spent phases of my life where I'm on this total neurotic end of the spectrum where I felt like it's all my fault. Everything is about me. If someone gives a look, it's because they hate me, right? And I think we can all relate to this. Many of us, especially those of you tuning into this podcast, we maybe have swung to these different extremes throughout our life. And it's important to know that all of us have a mixture of neurotic and quote-unquote personality or character disordered traits. It's just part of being human. But the major problem in our lives is to decide and clarify our responsibilities. To be truly committed to a life of integrity, love, honesty, the most important thing that we have to get in touch with is a sense of reality. And I myself have spent much of my adolescent and twenties really out of touch with reality. I was really bought in to my trauma, to my stories, to the belief that the world and the people in it were just going to bring me pain and suffering or that on the other side, that I was just this shitty person who is undeserving of love. And if we're living in these really like binary ways of thinking, that's not living in reality. And of course, that's going to lead to us not having the best experience of reality. And Scott Peck wrote that in order to be committed to reality, that it requires the willingness and the capacity to suffer continual self-examination. That's what he wrote. I don't think we necessarily have to suffer, but that's what he wrote. Continually checking in with ourselves, but not in a neurotic way, not in a beating ourselves up way, but having a level of self-awareness and having the ability to 
healthily engage in continual self-examination requires a good relationship with yourself. And someone who's living in a shame-based persona does not have a good relationship with themselves. In fact, a toxically shamed person actually has a really terrible relationship with themselves. Toxic shame is the kind of shame that John Bradshaw, one of the founders of the self-help movement, he talks about this shame that binds us. He has a book that is called Healing the Shame That Binds You because it does. It covers up your true self. It ties your hands together. You're not able to be free. And toxic shame is actually the basis for both neurotic and what is known as character or personality disordered patterns of behavior when it comes to psychology or psychoanalytic theory. So first, let's explore the neurotic side of shame. So how did this shame, the toxic shame that is binding us, how did it set up in our lives? How did it get here? What happens to the healthy sense of shame that we discussed in part one when shame turns toxic? Toxic shame is experienced as that overwhelming sense that you are flawed and defective as a person in some way and that people are going to find out that there's something deeply wrong with you. And toxic shame is no longer an emotion that signals our limit. Like we discussed in the first episode, that healthy sense of shame that helps us establish boundaries, that tells us, you know, that we can't take things too far. Toxic shame is a state of being. It becomes our identity at the very core of us. Toxic shame gives us a sense of feeling worthless, a sense of failing and somehow falling short as a human being. And so what toxic shame results in is a complete break of our self with ourself. John Bradshaw describes neurotic, toxic shame like internal bleeding. And he says that exposure to oneself lies at the heart of toxic shame. A shame-based person will guard against exposing his inner self to others, but more significantly, he will guard against exposing himself to himself. Let that really sink in. Those of us who struggle with toxic shame, have let this shame become such a big part of our identity that not only are we masking our true selves to other people, we don't even know who we are. And toxic shame is so incredibly painful because it's this exposure of a believed failure of self to our own selves. And In toxic shame, the self, this I, becomes an object of our own contempt. 
We can't even trust ourselves. We hate ourselves because we think that we are inherently flawed. And the worst part about this is that it's often unconscious. We aren't aware of how much this is coloring our perception of ourselves and ruling our lives and how it's turning out. Toxic shame is this inner torment. It is like a sickness in our soul. It feels very deep. So if you're an object that can't be trusted, then essentially you are not inside of you. Does that make sense? Toxic shame is really complicated and it's generated from within the self, but also isn't part of us. And the worst part is that there's shame about feeling shame. It just builds and builds and builds. People will be ready to admit almost anything except shame. They'll readily admit guilt, hurt, or fear before they're willing to admit the shame. And toxic shame is this feeling of being isolated and alone in a very complete and utter sense. And if you're a shame-based person, then you're haunted by a sense of absence and emptiness. Toxic shame hasn't been studied very much. It only really started being talked about in the 80s and 90s. And the thing about toxic shame is that it's easily confused with feeling guilty. Sigmund Freud studied anxiety and guilt, but he almost completely neglected investigating the concept of shame. In the 1990s, author Daniel Goleman, who wrote many books on emotional intelligence, this article he wrote was called Shame Steps Out of Hiding into Sharper Focus. And in the article, he wrote, psychologists admittedly chagrined and a little embarrassed are belatedly focusing on shame, a prevalent and powerful emotion, which somehow escaped rigorous scientific examination until now. And this was just in the 90s. So think about how recent this is, how unconscious this is. And because it was only spoken about in the 90s, many of us who are listening as millennials or even members of Gen Z, your parents and their parents had no one to point out the concept of toxic shame. So for the last few generations, this sense of unspoken Toxic shame has been boiling under the surface and being passed down generationally. Let's explore more about shame as an identity or how we internalize this shame, which is what leads it to becoming toxic. Any human emotion can be internalized. So when we internalize an emotion, it stops functioning like an emotion and becomes a style of character. You probably are familiar with someone or have run across someone in your life who could be labeled as that stereotypical angry person, or maybe someone who you just call a Debbie Downer, right? And in both cases, in this person, their emotion has become the core of their character, of their identity. The person doesn't experience or move through anger or sadness. They 
are inherently angry and sad. So in the case of shame, when we internalize it, it involves a few different processes. So first, when you internalize that toxic shame, you are identifying with unreliable and shame-based modes of thinking. Secondly, you are experiencing the trauma of abandonment and the bindings of those feelings and needs and drives with shame. And also the interconnection of different memories that you've had in your life, which forms almost this quilt that proves to yourself in your mind that you are somehow unworthy. This is how shame becomes internalized. So internalization of emotions is a very gradual, sneaky process. It happens slowly over a period of time. And every human being has to deal with certain aspects of this process. Internalization takes place when all three processes are consistently reinforced. So again, that is identifying with these unreliable shame-based models, experiencing trauma of abandonment, and then those feelings of not being able to have feelings and needs and drives that gets you feeling very shameful and then connecting all of these experiences into a picture that you believe based upon your childhood and early experiences is the proof that you are essentially an unlovable, shameful piece of shit. (laughs) And I think that we can all relate to this. Think about the, as we described before, a person who you might think of as the stereotypical grouchy old woman, right? Someone who just seems angry with the world. And she might have a lot of this internalization because early in her life, she might have experienced that the world is a bad place full of bad people that she can't trust. And she's taken that on as her identity. And I've said this in the podcast many times that my partner Zaz and I have had multiple discussions that our biggest fear is turning into that older person who is just so caught up in their stories that they can't experience the world as it is now. And they become bitter and they're complaining about the same things and they can't move forward. And conversely, you run across the older person who is a wise elder who has let their experiences mold them and become better, but they still have an optimistic sense of the world and they want to use that wisdom to move their lives forward and the lives forward of the people around them. And that's the kind of elder that I would really like to be. And that is what encouraged me to really embark on my own recovery journey and why I think toxic shame work is so incredibly important. I think a lot of these quote unquote grouchy old people that we see now in the form of the boomer generation, and then also generations before them and my grandparents' generation, and then before them, we're seeing this lack of awareness of toxic shame play out in a really big way, especially since boomers and members of Gen X are primarily in leadership positions right now with millennials coming up there and Gen Z on their heels, but there is no awareness of toxic shame. And I really think that toxic shame 
is driving a lot of the leadership decisions and a lot of the chaos in our world now. So to become aware of this within yourself is arguably some of the most powerful activism work that you can do. So we talked about these three different processes, identification with unreliable shame-based models, trauma of abandonment, the interconnection of memory imprints. We're going to dive into these individually so we can understand how we can avoid becoming that stereotypical grouchy old person that nobody wants to be around. And quite frankly, some of us might be that person right now. And you can be a grouchy, bitter person identified with shame and just exuding an energy where it's almost like repelling people from you. Because the thing is, and the tragic part is that people who are just soaking in toxic shame are not really the kind of people that healthy people want to be around. They can just sense that even if they love that person, they know that they don't want to be in an environment where the energy is like that. And I've experienced this in my life too. I've had friends have to cut me off and have people walk out of my life because of this. And I was so angry at the time, but now I can understand. So let's talk about how we can start identifying in our lives with shame-based models of thinking. How does this happen? So as I mentioned before, identification is a normal adaptive human process. We need to identify Identification gives us a sense of security. By belonging to something bigger than ourselves, we feel the security and protection of the larger reality. And this is why it's so common right now to see younger generations specifically really identifying with neurodiverse labels. You see young people on Tumblr or Instagram with like NPD, ASD, BPD, ADHD in their bio on their social profiles. They're making a disorder label a part of their identity. Why? Because I believe right now that's become a community where shame-based people can find community and a sense of being protected by these labels. The need to identify with someone, to feel a part of something, to belong somewhere is one of our most basic needs. And with the exception of self-preservation, right? To protect ourselves. And that's just built into us. That's why it's imagine like, you know, the self-protective instinct when you rage at someone because you have to protect yourself. That is just built into you hardwired. Other than self-preservation, there's actually no need that is quite as compelling as our need to identify and belong. And so this need to identify and belong, it begins with our caregivers or significant others and extensive family, our peer groups, the culture, our nation, and the world. It extends out. So when you think of this playing out in a smaller stage, like being heavily identified with a political party or tying your entire identity around a sports team, everybody knows someone in their life that's like lives with sports and 
in almost like an unhealthy way where you're like, you do know that there's a world outside of this, right? Or they're sobbing when their favorite sports team loses and you're just going, whoa, right? (laughs) And the same thing plays out when I see fandoms, you know, like Taylor Swift fandoms or, you know, some of the K-pop fandoms that have come, you know, into the cultural zeitgeist over the last few years, where you just see almost an unhealthy identification with something, right? Someone who is, for example, a Taylor Swift fan who makes their entire life based around Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is just a person. And I would imagine that Taylor Swift probably is a little creeped out by people making their entire lives about her. That would creep me out if I was a celebrity. There's a difference between admiring someone and loving their music. And even if you wait, you're like waiting until midnight to get that album because you love it so much. There's nothing wrong with that. But literally spending more time investigating the life of a celebrity and following their every move and letting your emotions be tied to what they do, that is not healthy. Not at all. So going back to the analogy of someone who makes a sports team their entire identity, just our team, that that concept of being on our team, right? That concept provides a way to experience the powerful emotions of winning and losing. So when your team wins, you win. When they lose, you lose and you go into a complete emotional spiral. So this need to belong explains the loyal and often fanatical adherence people display to their quote-unquote in-group. And so when children have shame-based parents, then as children, we identify with them. This is the first step in how we internalize shame. And John Bradshaw wrote his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, in the 1990s. And he's calling out, and him and amongst other psychologists in those days are calling out the pervasiveness of toxic shame, how it has led to our society today. It's playing out right in front of our eyes. And this is because many of us were raised by parents whose parents were raised by our grandparents and on and on who were living and modeling lives embedded in unconscious toxic shame. So for many of us as children, we didn't stand a chance because we were born directly into that environment and it's all we ever knew. But the good news is, is we can become conscious of this. We can transmute it and alchemize it so that it no longer runs our lives. So another thing that really contributes to the development and internalization of toxic shame is abandonment. Abandonment is the perfect term to describe how we lose touch with our authentic sense of self and how we actually, in a very early stage of our life, cease to exist from a psychological perspective. I really want you to let that sink in because if you are a shame-based person and toxic shame is your identity, like it, it has been mine, I'm still working through this. You have to understand that this has caused you at some point in your life to cease to exist. Your true self is not able to shine through. 
And I'm not trying to scare you because this is something we can work through. We're shining the light of awareness on it now. So children can't know who they are without reflective mirrors. Mirroring is done by our primary caregivers, and it is absolutely essential that we receive this in our early years. Abandonment includes this loss of a sense of mirroring. Parents who are shut down emotionally, which is all shame-based parents, they're actually unable to mirror and affirm their children's emotions. And since the earliest period of our life was pre-verbal, right? We weren't able to speak. Language was not possible when we were infants. Everything depended on emotional interaction. Without someone there to reflect your emotions back to you, you had no idea, no way of knowing who you actually were. And I want you to understand that mirroring remains important for your entire life. Think of a frustrating experience, which I think everybody's gone through, of talking to someone who's not looking at you or who's looking down at their phone. While you're talking, they're, you know, fumbling with their phone, or even maybe they're just kind of looking off out in the distance. Our identity demands a significant other whose eyes see us as we see ourselves. We want to feel seen and heard. And you know that feeling you get when you feel like you're not being paid attention to. It's very disturbing. So psychologist Eric Erickson defines identity itself as interpersonal. He wrote in his book, Childhood and Society, the sense of ego identity is the accrued confidence that the inner sameness and continuity are matched by the sameness and continuity of one's meaning for others. So besides a lack of mirroring, abandonment also includes the neglect of developmental dependency needs, any kind of abuse or neglect that includes emotional or also enmeshment into the covert or overt needs of the parents or the family system. Essentially, you know what an enmeshment is. It's when a child is inappropriately tied up with the parent, maybe is given parental duties. The parent might talk to them about adult matters when that is something that should not be put on a child. All of this can lead to a feeling of abandonment and this lack of mirroring. We're not being seen for who we truly are as a child. So this shame binding of feelings, needs, and our natural drives is actually a key factor in how healthy shame turns into toxic shame. Let me explain what I mean by this. We become shame-bound Whenever we start to feel like our feelings or our needs or our desires make us feel ashamed, we're ashamed of needing, we're ashamed of wanting. And here's the tragic part about that. Your dynamic core of being a human at all, your pure humanity is 
inherently your feelings, your needs, and your desires. So when your feelings, needs, and desires, the core of what makes you fucking human, when those are bound up by toxic shame, the very core of you is shamed. That's where the phrase shamed to the core comes from. So as we grow up, shaming experiences build up in our lives. We try to defend against them and the images of these experiences become burnt into our memory. And because we have no time or support to grieve the pain of this broken bond that we experience with our caregivers, these emotions are repressed and then the grief goes unresolved. And we need resolution of these emotions in our lives. Otherwise, they go underground. The verbal or things that we hear, these auditory imprints actually remain in our memory and the visual images of these shaming scenes. And as each new shaming scene takes place in our life, we build up these verbal imprints and visual images to attach to these already existing ones, forming that quilt of shaming memories that I described before. And children, as children, we also take note and almost record our parents' actions at their worst. So when mom and dad, step-parent, grandparent, or whoever the caretaker was for you are most out of control, they are most threatening to our survival as children. We perceive them as threatening to our survival. And our survival alarm bells are ringing as children when we see our caregivers out of control. So any subsequent shame experiences that even vaguely resemble that past trauma are things that can become easily triggered in the here and now. So over time, these accumulated scenes of shame attach together and they kind of snowball getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the years go on for us, it's almost like we barely need anything to trigger our little quilt of shame memories to further prove how worthless and horrible and unlovable we are. Even just a word, someone making a facial expression or anything can set it off. And sometimes even just an external stimulus like that, a facial expression or a scene or a word isn't even necessary. Just thinking about an old memory and just remembering something can trigger a really, really painful experience in the present. We call these shame spirals or like emotional flashbacks. So shame as an emotion in these instances becomes frozen and embedded into the core of our identity. This is how shame becomes deeply internalized in our being. 
So toxic shame can also serve to lead to self-alienation and isolation. So when we suffer from alienation, it means that we experience parts of ourself as alien to ourselves. So let's explore what that looks like. An example of this might be if you were never allowed to express anger in your family, then your own anger becomes an alienated part of you. So essentially you will experience toxic shame when you feel angry because you've disavowed or severed off, split off from this part of yourself. There's no way to get rid of your emotional power of anger. Anger, as we have talked about in a previous episode, which you can listen to, I did a whole episode on healthy versus unhealthy anger. Anger is the self-preserving and self-protecting energy, just like healthy shame helps us develop humility and boundaries. Without the energy of anger, becoming split off from your anger and disidentifying from it, we become a doormat. We become people pleasers. And as our feelings, our needs, and our drives become more and more bound by this toxic shame, the more and more of us, the more parts of us are split off and alienated. When shame becomes completely and utterly internalized, at this point, nothing about ourselves is okay. We feel flawed. We feel inferior. We feel the sense of being a failure. And there's no way when we are completely internalizing our toxic shame, there's no way for us to share our inner self because we are actually at that point an object of contempt to our own selves. And when we're contemptible to ourselves, we're no longer there because our true selves are beings of love and acceptance. So it's almost like no one is home. That's why we feel so empty. So to feel shame is to feel seen in an exposed and diminished way. But when you're an object to yourself, you turn your eyes like inward. You watch and scrutinize every little detail of your behavior. And this internal critical observation is excruciating, speaking from firsthand experience. And this horrifyingly brutal inner monologue that many of us struggle with and just live with thinking that that's just us in our minds. It generates this tormenting consciousness and this creates this paralyzing effect. And when we are paralyzed with this constant internal brutal inner critic It causes us to withdraw. It causes us to become more passive and makes us afraid of taking action on anything. So these split off parts of ourselves, these aspects that we have deemed not okay, like if we're splitting off from our anger, all these different splits are projected in our relationships as adults. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And they're often the basis of much hatred and prejudice in the world. I bring up many of the leaders who are members of, you know, the older generations who may not be conscious of their toxic shame. They've split off from maybe their sexuality, from their anger, from their et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blank, the trait. So these severed parts that we project out into the world do make up much of the hatred and prejudice and then also just the stress and inability to connect in our own lives. These split off parts of ourselves might be experienced as a split personality sometimes in instances of severe trauma, which manifests in instances of legitimate dissociative identity disorder, which is also known as multiple personalities. This is like at the very severe end of the spectrum. And this happens with victims who've been through oftentimes severe physical and sexual violation. So to be severed and alienated within ourselves also creates a sense of unreality, a lack of touch with reality. Because we might have this all-encompassing sense of never quite belonging anywhere, of being on the outside looking in. And if you've ever had that feeling, that is caused by inner alienation and isolation and toxic shame. It's also what gives rise to a lot of depression. And this has to do with losing our authentic self. John Bradshaw wrote that perhaps the deepest and most devastating aspect of neurotic shame is the rejection of the self by the self. So because the exposure of self to self, right? lies at the heart of what makes up this neurotic, toxic shame. We don't even have to escape from ourselves. The escape from ourselves is actually something we accomplish by creating a fake or false self. And now when we create false selves or masks because of toxic shame, these masks are always either more or less than human. So a false self we create might be a perfectionist, right? Because no one's perfect, but we might try. Cough, cough. I'm calling myself out here. Or this false self might be a slob um, or the family hero or a family scapegoat. And as the false self is formed, the authentic self then goes into hiding. We don't even have touch with that anymore. So years later, 
these layers of defense and pretense become so extreme that we don't even know who we are anymore. How many of you listening right now can identify with just being like, I don't know who the fuck I am. I don't even know who I am. I know I can, that that has definitely been my reality. So it's so important for us to recognize and see that these false selves or masks might be as polar opposite as a drug addict, you know, shooting up drugs in an alley or a super high achieving perfectionist, high flying CEO who's convinced they can do no wrong, right? Same, same, but different. (laughs) Both of these false selves are driven to cover up this deep sense of what John Bradshaw calls self-rupture or a hole in their soul, right? They might cover up in ways that look completely polar opposite, but each of these things is still driven by neurotic, toxic shame. And actually, the most complicated aspect of neurotic shame is that it's actually the core motivator of both the super high achievers and the super underachievers, the star and the scapegoat. John Bradshaw writes, the righteous and the wretched, the powerful and the pathetic. That's why it's ironic when a shame-based, high-achieving, super-rich CEO who's a perfectionist and feels like they can do no wrong, casting judgment upon an addict shooting up drugs in an alley is ironic because each of them could both be driven by the exact same neurotic and toxic shame, hence why we should never judge others. So you've probably heard a lot about codependency and many, many people have written about codependency and most of them agree that codependency, the heart of it lies in the loss of selfhood that we've been discussing here up to this point. Codependency happens when we don't have any inner life. I want to say that again. We become codependent people when we're completely out of touch with and don't have inner lives. Happiness, in these instances, when we are codependent, happiness is on the outside of us. Good feelings and self-validation lie outside of us. We don't even know what it feels like for good feelings and validation to come from within ourselves. Pia Melody is an internationally renowned lecturer on the childhood origins of emotional dysfunction and her recovery workshops have benefited people all over the world. Now, Pia Melody's definition of codependency is a state of disease whereby the authentic self is unknown or kept hidden so that the sense of self or mattering of esteem and connectedness to others is distorted, creating pain and distorted relationships. So there's no real difference in that definition and the way that authors like John Bradshaw and how we've covered here in this episode describe internalized shame. So 
John Bradshaw believes that internalized shame is actually the essence of what makes up codependency. And I tend to agree with him and hence why I think it's so important that we do these episodes on toxic shame because it is the core issue, point blank period. James Kaufman is an American psychologist and he sees many of the categories of emotional illness which are defined in the DSM currently as actually being rooted in neurotic shame. So it seems pretty obvious that some of these different quote-unquote disorder labels are actually just rooted in toxic shame. These include dependent personality, clinical depression, schizoid phenomena, and also what we know as borderline personality disorder. Now, it is starting to become a consensus belief that toxic shame is actually a unifying concept for this maze of different psychological disorder labels. And because of that, it's kind of become counterproductive to have a bunch of these different labels, even though, as we've discussed in previous episodes, they can be helpful. We're going to bring up another character, James F. Masterson. He lived between 1926 and passed away in 2010. He was a prominent American psychiatrist, and he was internationally recognized and helped inaugurate the study and treatment of personality disorders, including borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. And he did most of his work most prominently in the 1960s and 70s, where he developed his theory of borderline personality disorder. What's starting to become debated by many people who research toxic shame is that when researching James Masterson's work on borderline personalities or what he refers to as borderline personalities, it is becoming more and more clear that there isn't much difference in the treatment of toxically shame-based people and treatment of what is known as borderline personality disorder. And it's becoming more and more prevalent that what we call BPD is actually just a syndrome of toxic neurotic shame. So listen to this. This is the characteristics of what James Masterson referred to as borderline personality. One, self-image disturbance. Two, difficulty identifying and expressing one's own individuated thoughts, wishes, and feelings, and autonomously regulating self-esteem, and difficulty with self-assertion. If you have felt like you identify with the traits of BPD and you haven't had your aha moment yet, you haven't felt like anything has been helping or quote unquote working, you might find that these aha moments come with studying toxic and neurotic shame. And it's my hope that this series on toxic shame will help some of you who are in that position. Maybe you don't have a disordered personality. Maybe you have just internalized toxic shame as your identity. And that is what's giving rise to these quote-unquote personality disordered behaviors. Shame is also the core and fuel of addiction. 
So if you struggle with addictive or impulsive behaviors, the exploration of toxic shame will also be incredibly helpful for you too. A good working definition of compulsive or addictive behavior is a pathological relationship to any mood-altering experience that has life-damaging consequences. And so addictive behavior could be anything, but if it creates disorder and dysfunction in your life, then it is likely not great and could be addictive behavior. So the drive behind any addiction is about a ruptured sense of self, the belief that we are flawed as a person. Sound familiar? So the content of the addiction, whether it is in ingestive type addiction, like meaning like taking drugs or around some kind of substance or an activity addiction, like working, shopping, gambling, or maybe a porn addiction, sex addiction. It's an attempt at an intimate relationship. So a workaholic might have an intimate relationship with his work you might have an intimate relationship with your vape pen. An alcoholic might have an intimate relationship with his booze, right? All of these people are having a love affair with their addiction. And each one mood alters to avoid the feeling of loneliness and hurt in the core shame that lives within that person that they haven't addressed. And each episode of the addiction playing out, whatever that addiction might be, creates damaging consequences in our lives, which then creates more shame. And then this shame fuels the cycle of addiction even more. There's even a figure in the addictive process that you can look up It's called the squirrel cage (laughs) and it essentially provides a visual picture of how internalized shame fuels the addictive process and how addictions create more shame, which sets us up to become more shame-based in our daily lives. And you can Google that if you want to. So let's take an alcoholic, for example, they might drink to solve their problems, right? And a lot of times alcoholics drink to solve the problems that have been caused by their drinking. And the more they drink to relieve their shame and the shame-based loneliness and hurt they feel, the more they feel ashamed. Shame creates more shame. And the cycle begins with the false belief system that addicts have and that no one could want them or love them just as they are. And most addicts, it's impossible for them to love themselves. They are a disgusting object to themselves. And this deep internalized shame causes extremely distorted thinking. And this distorted thinking can be reduced to the belief that I'll be okay if I can just drink, eat, have sex, watch porn, hit my vape pen, get more money, get this promotion, work harder, etc. right? The shame turns someone into a human doing rather than a human being. 
So when we are more focused on being human doings rather than human beings, our worth is measured on the outside. Similar with codependency, our worth is never ever seen as coming from the inside, which is where it's supposed to be coming from. So John Bradshaw writes about kind of the stages of this addictive romantic relationship that addicts have with their drug of choice, whether that be a drug that they ingest or something that they do, a behavior they engage in. So he writes, the mental obsession about the specific addictive relationship is the first mood alteration. Since thinking takes us out of our emotions, after obsessing for a while, the second mood alteration occurs. This is the quote, acting out or ritual stage of the addiction. The ritual might involve drinking with the boys, secretly eating in one's favorite hiding place, or seeking a porn video out online. So the ritual ends in getting drunk, you know, feeling like they've had enough food, having an orgasm, spending all of their money or whatever that end result might be. So what happens after this process plays out that addicts just continue to engage in over and over again is a deep feeling of shame over someone's behavior, of our behavior, and the damaging consequences it's having on our lives, right? Feeling hungover, maybe engaging in infidelity, so feeling like you've betrayed people that you love, maybe engaging in sex that has been demeaning to you, spending money that you didn't have. So this is almost like a meta shame. It's like extra intense shame. It is transforming of the shame about ourself into the shame about this acting out behavior and experiencing those life damaging consequences. And the meta shame intensifies our shame-based identity. So then you can imagine how easy would it be for someone engaged in these cycles to think, I'm a piece of shit. There is something deeply fucking wrong with me that is not wrong with other people. And this song plays over and over and over in the minds of shame-based addicts who arguably are all addicts are shame-based. And the more this song plays in our mind, the more it becomes true. It becomes a belief system, a false belief system. And so at this point, the toxic shame fuels the addiction itself and becomes a repetitive and regenerative process. So toxic shame and guilt are often very tightly intertwined, but it's really important to understand that toxic shame, it's very important that we know how to distinguish that from guilt because just like shame, just like anger, guilt can be healthy or toxic. So healthy guilt is the emotional core of our conscience. Healthy guilt is an emotion that results from behaving or acting in a way that is the opposite to our held beliefs and values. In the stages of psychosocial development, the ability to feel guilt as we're developing as children actually develops later than our sense of healthy shame. So according to our friend Eric Erickson, who we've referenced quite a few times now here in this series, 
the third stage of psychosocial development that we go through as children to develop into healthy individuals is the polar balance between initiative and guilt. And this stage, according to Erickson, begins around after age three. Guilt is developmentally more mature than shame. So there is a point in our lives as children that we have no concept of even being able to feel guilt. Guilt doesn't reflect directly on our identity or diminish our sense of personal worth. It actually comes from our set of values that we have. So in the book, Facing Shame, the authors Fossum and Mason write this, a person with guilt might say, I feel awful seeing that I did something which violated my values. Or the guilty person might say, I feel sorry about the consequences of my behaviors. In so doing, the person's values are reaffirmed, the possibility of repair exists, and learning and growth are promoted. While guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about one's self as a person. The possibility for repair seems foreclosed to the shameful person, because shame is a matter of identity not of behavioral infraction. There's nothing to be learned from it and no growth is opened by the experience because it only confirms one's negative feelings about one's self. So what are they saying there? They're essentially saying there's a huge difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, oh, I fucked up. I really shouldn't have done that. That thing that I did wasn't the best reflection of me and I feel guilty about that. But shame means that what you do is really who you are. If you did a bad thing, that you are bad. Do you see what I'm saying? Huge, huge difference. So hopefully now it's clear. This huge contrast between toxic shame, healthy shame, toxic guilt, and healthy guilt. It's very important that we understand these things because we can't completely eradicate guilt and shame. They're there for a reason. We need them to be fully human, but we can't let them go to the extremes where we are completely bound by toxic shame or have no shame or are completely feeling racked by guilt or having no fucks given and feeling no guilt. We need the balance. John Bradshaw wrote that he believed that restoring what he calls the interpersonal bridge is the key for treating people who are shame-based. Martin Buber was an Austrian-Israeli philosopher, and he was best known for his philosophy of dialogue, a form of existentialism centered around the distinction between the I-thou relationship and the I-it relationship. So he said a long time ago that what heals in any model of therapy, the healing factor, why do we all go to therapy? He figured it out. It is the I and thou relationship, the you and me. Once the interpersonal bridge between you and me is established, then the idea is 
that in therapy, the client will accept the therapist's non-judging acceptance. John Bradshaw believed that toxically shame-based people, he thought that group therapy was one of the most healing things for them. And he believed that group therapy was so important, no matter what the specific generation of the shame in them happened to be. And the reason being is because the group seems to provide a sense of mattering and being important in a way that a one-on-one relationship isn't as good at providing. And this could point to why groups, support groups have become so important in healing. There's a reason why groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, even Al-Anon, Um, all of these groups have provided so much healing and transformative qualities for people and connection back to community that has been great in eliminating toxic shame and helping people recover from addictions. Timon Cermak is an American psychiatrist and he's known for his work on codependent personality types. And he's pointed out the advantages of group psychotherapy. Cermak believes that Group therapy provides a setting where the issues of codependency emerge spontaneously. He believes that people in group settings behave much as they do in real life. So for example, they will be distrustful, controlling, people-pleasing, critical. And as they come to understand that those behaviors reflect unconscious patterns of defense against toxic shame then this group therapy setting actually becomes a great place to start seeing the truth of one's behaviors and start coming up with alternative behaviors. And this is the very reason why 12-step groups have been so powerfully transformative for so many. John Bradshaw believed that people with shame-based identities need to work on changing these quilts, right? The Remember the shame memory quilts that we're talking about? And these imprints of shame that we have stored that have become these critical internalized voices that continue to trigger shame spirals. He believes that 12-step groups can be really powerful in dismantling those because of what we talked about, the benefits of group therapy. He even thought that they should make toxic shame 12-step groups, which I honestly think would be an interesting idea. Now, it's important to note too that many people and even clinicians out there, mental health clinicians, they cringe at 12-step programs because they believe that there is a quote-unquote spirituality piece in these groups. And I think this is a misunderstanding, right? 12-step groups actually have incomparable success in healing addictions. And not only that, they've saved the lives of many and they're free. But I worked in a drug and alcohol rehab facility when I was a um, freshman in college. I sat in on many, many 12-step meetings with my clients that were visiting the rehab center. And 12-step programs make it pretty clear that in order to heal from an addiction, you need some kind of higher power they talk about. And this has led many 12-step groups to get a pretty bad reputation of just being like 
shoving religion down people's throats. And I'm not saying that that might not happen in some 12-step groups, but the true core of 12-step, if they're not being led by members who are trying to force maybe Christianity down people's throats, the real idea is, is that to heal shame, healing toxic shame means really connecting with a bigger picture, zooming out. And that doesn't have to mean becoming a Christian, but it does mean, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion, it means having your own spiritual awakening and finding out what a sense of grounded spirituality means to you. This could be turning your religion into nature. Nature could be your spirituality, going on mindfulness walks. You could explore Hinduism, Buddhism, um, myth and mysticism. Just go back into the past and start exploring things that are a little bit bigger than you. It can connect you to this wider global fabric and generational fabric that is not rooted in this really main character syndrome shame-based identity that we've created. So I couldn't agree more with people like John Bradshaw and other professionals who are saying and speaking to the power of developing a sense of grounded spirituality for you and also connecting with support groups. And I know sometimes it's really hard for us to find that in real life, but that is a major reason why I wanted to start my podcast and my Patreon community so that we can start healing together. And I think that podcasts like mine are a way where we can virtually kind of gather together and alchemize some of this toxic shame. Okay, everyone, that's it for the free portion of Back from the Borderline. Out of all the things you could spend your time on, out of the zillions of content options available, you chose to be here with me. More importantly, you chose to show up for yourself. Next up is the back half of the episode, which is available to my premium submarines. So if you're tuning in from the free public back from the borderline feed, that means you'll get a short preview of this episode. Lucky you. But to unlock the full episode, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, you can do that by becoming a premium submarine. So to sign up today, check out the link in these show notes or visit backfromtheborderline.com. All right. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. It's been a while. Welcome to our stupid walk for our stupid mental health. Right now, I'd like to paint you a picture. Zaz and I are living near a place where there's just this vast expanse of the most beautifully well-maintained grass and for those of you who are new submarines i've spoken in the past about how much i've learned about earthing or grounding and if you haven't read about that i encourage you to do some research there's a vast amount of information out there about the power of grounding and earthing and that is just walking with your bare feet 
touching the ground. And you can do this even if you're not near grass. But I've been working a lot on myself the last couple of months. It's been a dark night of the soul period for me. Another one. As we all know, there's lots of times where we have to go into that mythical underworld of our own mind and we kind of uncover more that needs to be healed. And something that I've realized is how much I've been intellectualizing my healing process. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I realized that I was living so much in my head and gathering so much information, which is great, and increasing my understanding, but it almost became like another way that I've been avoiding how much I'm not in my body. I'm the kind of person who has always ignored my body, pretty much. And I know that that comes from my history of sexual assault and sexual abuse and grooming. And if you hear some background noise, there are some airplanes flying ahead so I apologize for the the noise but this is what we get when we're out here doing real life ambiance and our stupid walks wind and sometimes ambient noise so I've been outside my body what does that look like it looks like me forgetting to even feed myself it looks like me focusing completely on intellectual stuff it looks like me forgetting to move my body it isn't good and I can feel the detrimental impact that it's been having on me and I've known for a long time that I I need to look into somatics and for those of you who aren't aware it's somatic experiencing is just various different methodologies there's tons of different ways that you can start looking into somatics and trauma recovery and that can sometimes be through energy healing reiki um somatic experiencing for me i recently went to a body worker here in austin and this was just last week and the experience was insane i can't even really explain it to you Since that session, I've been experiencing huge waves of emotion coming up. I recognized after doing the mother and father wound episodes how much anger and bitterness I had within me. And yeah, I was angry at my mom and angry at my dad. But I realized also that this anger and bitterness has just been in generations of my family and so much of my family came from long long lines hundreds of years of abject poverty addiction and abuse and I realized I wanted to let that go I want to let it go so badly And not only that, I want to find what freedom means to me. I want to... It's going to make me cry, you guys. But like, 
I'm just tired. I'm tired of living in the past and the future. I'm tired of being constantly clenched. I've realized so much how the the chronic pain that I have in my neck and my shoulders and my jaw is from this anger inside of me that I've held. I've realized that so much of my difficulty with intimacy is because I've had, I've been betrayed so many times and my anger with men and my, my deep resentment of men came from how many men took advantage of me, but I let that become the definition of all men. (laughs) And so it stopped me oftentimes from connecting with men who did have my best interest at heart and who could have been a good addition to my life, even as friends. I realized that my veil through which that I saw the world was one through pain, anger, resentment, and this assumption that nobody really had good intentions. I'm constantly looking for the next shoe to drop. And I'm outside my body. I'm not home. So how could I have a meaningful connection with my intimacy when intimacy for me has only ever been a means to feel wanted and important for the moment? My intimacy has never been mine. My body has never been mine. I've never been able to write my own narrative because... It's almost like I've allowed these experiences to write my narrative for me. So I have no sense of agency. And then I've been caught up the last few weeks too of going like, who the fuck am I to be making a podcast for people to guide them through things when I am so fucked up? I said this to Zaz and Zaz helped me understand that that's the reason I'm making this is to document the process of what it looks like to move through these things. I'm not saying I have it figured out, but I'm hoping that one day when I'm no longer here, people can go back and listen to the earliest episodes and listen to a journey of someone vulnerably sharing the ups and the downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and talking about things that nobody wants to talk about. That's what's important to me. And so that's what I want to do. But the purpose of this particular stupid walk is to speak to anyone else out there, and I assume that it's probably most of you who are not in your body right now who are constantly tensing your muscles. You might even be tensing right now, this very second. You might be clenching your shoulders, clenching your neck, your back, your jaw. You might be constantly looking out for the next thing to go wrong. And I want to tell you that that's okay. That's normal and it probably makes perfect sense based upon what you've been through. But what I'm realizing is that 
This is another way we protected ourselves. All right, everyone. That's it for today's free version of Back from the Borderline. In the rest of this talk, we discuss more about how we can get out of our head and back into our bodies. And near the end of the discussion, I outline some different things that I've done that have helped me that don't cost an arm and a leg because I know finances are tight for so many. I also talk about how traumatic experiences in our past, whether they be little T or big T traumas, how that can convince us that no one in the world has good intentions for us and how it can harden into this veil that we see the world through and the impact that can have. So if you'd like to unlock the full conversation, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, all you have to do is visit the link in the episode description of this episode right here and become a premium submarine today. Not only do my premium submarines receive loads of additional premium content each month, but the support of my subscribers allows me to focus on podcasting full-time and invest more time in research and production quality. But if you're not ready to become a premium submarine, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or even sharing an episode with someone you care about. To make sure that you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app. And I also share daily photos, quotes, and additional reflections and resources with my community on Instagram. You can follow me there at Back from the Borderline. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder, lies your greatest strength. If only you would dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. Anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.